This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. The kickoff meeting will be held on Thursday, May 20th. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jamda on the Go. This podcast will spotlight articles from the May 2021 issue of Jamda, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Once again, we will be speaking with Jamda co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the program on aging, disability, and long-term care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Drs. Brown and Sloan, welcome back to JAMDA on the go. Thank you so much, Wayne. Happy to be here again. Thanks, Wayne. So uh, once again, the the uh, May 2021 issue of JAMDA is jam-packed with uh, research from around the world. What are we talking about from the May issue? Wayne, we have two general topics to discuss that are featured in this month's JAMDA. One is to take stock of some of the lessons learned from this past year's experience with COVID-19 and speculate about how the future of long-term care has been reshaped by the pandemic. The other is to talk about innovations in technology in post-acute and long-term care. Wonderful. Innovations and lessons learned sounds fascinating. So let's get started. Uh, Dr. Brown, I'll I'll start with you. Um, You know, uh, the first article really talks about um, uh, issues beyond the morbidity and mortality that we have heard about for the past year within the long-term care setting. Um, Tell us about the first article. Absolutely. Over the past few months, I think we on this podcast and within the journal have occasionally questioned and also addressed how COVID-19 was impacting nursing home resident well-being beyond just um, the impact of the virus on our residents. This article presents a quantitative analysis of resident outcomes related to well-being from March, so last year when the pandemic began, to July of 2020. All studied participants were in the nursing home for at least 100 days and were residents of the nursing home at the onset of the pandemic here in the United States. 
Resident outcomes from 2017 to 2019 were studied as a comparison. Within this study, they found that, as one might suspect, throughout the pandemic, nursing home resident outcomes worsened on a number of different measures. Depressive symptoms, weight loss, incontinence, and reductions in cognitive function all increased significantly. The authors concluded that loneliness and isolation play a key role in nursing home resident outcomes. So while the virus case count and the deaths attributed to COVID-19 were hugely detrimental to our nursing homes, no questions asked, these analyses also showed that the pandemic had additional substantial impacts on nursing home residents. And the adverse effect on physical and emotional well-being of residents has taken a toll and will continue to be what we need to address and factor it into the care that we provide to residents moving forward. As the pandemic slows and policies are created for the future to prevent spread of infectious disease outbreaks, we really must consider what um, additional costs beyond the direct effects of morbidity and mortality of the infection can cause. Uh, absolutely, just a, a just devastating, uh, and the the loneliness and isolation uh, so so palpable for all of us to see every night on the news. No, thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, uh, Dr. Sloan, tell us about another one of the papers in this special section of uh, the May two meh, the May two thousand and twenty one issue of Jamda. When did this next paper really dovetails with what Mallory was talking about, you know, about it's about what COVID-19 can teach us about improving resident quality of life. We've already heard about a number of quality of life indicators that were really torpedoed. And this one is written by a distinguished international group of nurses and gerontologists. They identified 18 quality of life innovations that either developed during COVID-19 or were accelerated by the pandemic. Um, so they're, look, they're looking at the glass half full, you know, areas covered by the intervention included increasing resident social connections, improving physical fitness, promoting communication between families and staff, and supporting relationships between residents and staff. And of course, this is all in the setting of the lockdown. Examples range from granny cams to outdoor fitness classes to room and board for direct care workers. And seven of the 18 innovations use digital technology. So when I look over the list and considering what I've heard, read, and experienced, here are a few thoughts about priorities for continuation after the pandemic is over. At the top of my list would be more consistent communication between administrative staff and families using such things that were developed under the pandemic as weekly letters and routine telephone calls. Particularly valuable is assigning each family a staff member as a nursing home's liaison and consistent point of contact. This has been shown by research to be the single best predictor of family satisfaction, having a specific person they can call with a question or complaint who they know and are confident will follow through. Next on my list would be the acknowledgement that many families do important caregiving tasks. As Mallory discussed a few minutes ago, losing the help these families provided was one of the tragedies of the COVID-19 lockdown and led to some of the things she talked about. In response, some nursing homes have created what they call essential family caregiver positions, treating those highly involved family members a lot like staff, you know, providing a badge, putting them on a schedule and so on. 
Some facilities even paid family caregivers, but that feels a little extreme considering the financial stresses that facilities are under. But the other thing I would mention is just to expect a more technology in the nursing home. We'll talk more about this later in the podcast. You know, here I'll just say that having the facility provide the technology and staff to enable virtual visits was a tremendous hit. And it will remain a way to please family who can't visit as often they would like. The course, I mean, I'm sorry, the issue of course is staff time. And so creative solutions are needed. You know, for example, would volunteers even from even among the more cognitively intact residents be a possibility? I don't know. You, you know, Dr. Sloan, I, I don't want to digress from the from this conversation, um, and I'm interested in if there are, are other uh, comments to be made, but I will say that I was taken um, by, once again, how this journal um, really does um, integrate, uh, if that's the right word, um, uh, other countries uh, into really looking at models of care. This article alone United States, Canada, China, Switzerland, Spain. I mean, what a what a what a a wonderful aggregate to really represent and give strength to um, to what is happening out in the post-acute and long-term care world across the world. <laughs> well, you know, every country has been has had to deal with COVID. And they've dealt with it in different ways, and the long-term care systems have adjusted or not adjusted or maladjusted. And so there's a lot of joint learning if we can just kind of capitalize on it. Mm, mm, mm. You know, there's a bigger picture though that I'd like to discuss on this topic, which is not related to these papers, but is on many people's minds. And that is the crisis of low nursing home census. You know, as of January, for example, the average nursing home occupancy across the country was in the low 70s. With the lowest occupancy rate, 56%, among Texas nursing homes. Federal COVID relief funds have helped nursing homes stay afloat, but what's going to happen when this ends? You know, mm -hmm. these numbers are unsustainable. Mm -hmm. The typical figure for financial viability is around 90% occupancy, at least that's what they tell me. Um, the reason for this drop in census, it's clear, you know, patients are more scared than ever of nursing homes. Hospitals are as well. And so they work hard to discharge patients to other settings. It's been really shown. They're trying to send everybody at home if they can, anything but a nursing home. At the federal level, many in Congress are pushing for more support for home and community-based care. And the idea is anything but nursing homes has of course been a trend for many years. COVID-19 has just accelerated it. Mm. But on the nursing home side, there are calls to really change the industry. I mean, this may be an opportunity you know, serious talk about such things as making all nursing homes like greenhouses, you know, limiting unit sizes to 12 or 16 beds, you know, mandating most rooms to be private, insisting on more registered nurses and changing the financing so that nursing homes don't have to depend on Medicare to offset Medicaid losses. The kicker, of course, is that these things cost money. And is Congress going to be prepared to write bigger checks for something that's unpopular? I don't know. I, all I know is that um, it has been extremely stressful to get calls from families um, mm -hmm. asking, is there any way that my, my mom can go home and not go to the skilled nursing facility and trying to come up with a plan or, or and or trying to reassure them that the skilled nursing facility really is the best place for them to be right now? Mm -hmm. um, very, 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 very challenging. You know, Dr. Brown, what are, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think this is such an important point. It's certainly true that as we weathered the storm of keeping COVID out, I know our facility and facilities that I work with have also seen the impact of that, which keeps residents out, keeps new patients from coming in. I'm preaching to the choir when I mentioned how hard it has been to discharge a patient from the hospital to a nursing home, like you both just said, since COVID started. Both sides have had hesitancy and concern, and now with many visitation restrictions that have been in place, my panel of patients who live at home and end up in the hospital are nervous, they're choosy, they have far more questions about what it looks like in that skilled nursing facility and often opt just not to go, um, whether or not it's the best care for them to go home. Um, No one was particularly interested in going to stay at a SNF when their family can't come to visit. And if they're sharing a room, that certainly adds to that that layer of anxiety for sure. Um, COVID-19's made the nursing homes and their consumers call for action. So I'm not sure. um, And I'd love to hear, Wayne, what you think about whether or not Congress will put funds behind this. But as a geriatrician, I feel strongly that we really need to be considering it. You know, um, Dr. Brown, um, uh, AMDA has uh, continued to be an advocate for um, for promoting the post-acute and long-term care setting, for trying to show um, our members of Congress the value that it brings. And they are receptive to listening, but gosh, money, you know, it's when it comes to money, everybody just kind of turns the other way. I'm really hoping that um, that const- the constituents um, uh, for these members across the state are able to weigh in and um, as we heal and hope that uh, they can initiate uh, change because as it should be, it's all about it's all about constituents. So And now a word from our sponsor, US Post Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Well, on a on a positive note, let's uh, <laughs> let's switch to the second major topic of the May 2021 um, issue of Jamda. Has to with uh, with with innovations. Uh, Let's talk about computerized decision support. Um, I found that this article was amazingly thorough uh, in its review, and hence it was called a scoping review. But Dr. Sloan, um, what does it demonstrate for us? Well, you know, to me, a scoping review means they actually 
think about what they do instead of just kind of telling you that there's <laughs> there's need for more research. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was a review article about decision support systems for nursing homes from a group of this in France from the Sorbonne. Um, they searched English language literature and found 24 high quality papers to review with data on 20 unique clinical decision support systems. Eight were about systems to aid drug prescribing, six facilitated medication reviews, so medications were a big deal, three provided guides on management of such conditions as chronic heart failure, and seven addressed either pressure ulcer prevention or optimizing resident nutrition. All these systems were studied using either randomized trials or longitudinal outcome studies. Mm -hmm. So my first impression was surprised at the amount of work that's been done on developing computer-based decision systems, despite the fact that electronic health records are rather undeveloped in nursing homes compared with, for example, hospitals or ambulatory care. Also, I was encouraged to find trials reporting that computerized decision support can reduce pressure ulcer incidents, decrease drug adverse effects, and improve nutrition in measurable, meaningful ways. Then I dug deeper, and it became clear that many problems were also identified. For example, nursing home medical record data is spotty, and yet providers did not like tools that asked them to enter data. So if the tool needs to bring data in from the record, it often doesn't function very well. Also, when user acceptance was reported, nearly half of studies reported poor clinician use of these tools, which kind of resonates with many of our experiences in uh, other settings. Mm -hmm. and this was in the context of a research study focusing specifically on one tool. So that's the dilemma, not just in the nursing home, but in medical practice everywhere. Computerized decision support helps clinicians make better decisions, but it takes time and creates hassles. You know, many years ago, I was involved uh, with a um, electronic medical record for post-acute long-term care that meant to put into place these support tools. And the concern was that that um, providers would not use them. But the other concern was something the paper talks about, and that is um, alert fatigue, similar to, um, to alarm fatigue, and that um, uh, folks would become numb to the recommendations that, um, that, that came forth. So very interesting. But is there a, is there a, a greater take-home point uh, here? You know, I think there is um, for medical directors and clinicians who are very active in long-term care. And it's that drug regimen decision support is ready for prime time in the nursing home. Hmm. In part because such systems already exist for the hospital, require little, if any, adaptation to detect such things as, you know, risk for adverse effects, um, dosage appropriateness, and high-risk drug interactions. Um, so medical directors will want to work with their consultant pharmacist. That's the other thing. You've got the pharmacist there who can maybe honcho the whole thing. Hmm. And um, therefore, the physician won't have to get into the weeds. Now, beyond that, the next thing I would consider is decision support that reinforces guidelines. Hmm. And this gets a little trickier, uh, but it ties appropriate guideline adherent nursing assessments with recommendations for physician orders around things such as nutrition, or pressure ulcer prevention. And then the third area would be providing guidance around infections. You know, this is a very particular interest, and we all know that prescribing for infections in nursing homes in many situations is just not guideline adherent. And 
you know, it's real challenging because so many of the guidelines depend on symptoms and so many people have dementia and they don't really tell you what their symptoms are and there's all kinds of problems. But regardless of that, the, the problem is so immense that implementing decision support that follows protocols on diagnosis and medication selection is worth working on. But at this time, these systems just really, they're not there. They need development, they need validation. Uh, I wish we could uh, do more innovation on um, not just medication reconciliation, but total medication oversight. And I really look forward to when there are tools to uh, help that. And perhaps uh, this paper helps us uh, identify how um, how that can really be launched at some point. Um, Dr. Brown, what do you what do you think about Exer Games? I'm excited about Exer Games. I don't know if Dr. Sloan shares my excitement, but. <laughs> Um, I might be dating myself and I might have just lost track of time, but a decade ago, I think actually a little longer, the Nintendo Wii was flying off the shelves. I remember using Wii Fit as a mode of exercise in the odd hours of the day in my living room in med school to make sure I was fitting in some kind of physical fitness. A number of renditions later, um, they're still an option today and maybe a really great option for our nursing home residents. Virtual reality extra games offer an innovative approach to promoting older adults, both mental and physical health. I think we've talked about the physical health route on this podcast before, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this particular article focuses a bit more on how this can be helpful for mental health. Um, these extra games are active video games controlled by bodily movements in a safe surrounding with the advantages of physical activity, engagement, and interactions. This particular study explored the effectiveness of how these virtual reality extra games as they relate to cognition and lessening of depressive outcomes. The meta-analysis found that extra games had a moderate effect on cognitive function and memory, and actually a large effect on depressive outcomes. Longer duration of use seemed to have more positive results. So we, when folks stuck with it, they saw better outcomes. The bottom line of this study is that virtual reality extra games provide potential really positive influences on cognition, memory, and potentially most important, particularly as we um, come out of this pandemic, hopefully depression in older adult populations. Hmm. Getting residents engaged in these is most certainly worth a shot, in my opinion. Well, I'll tell you, I was that dad waiting in line at a major um at a major toy company um before a major holiday uh in the cold wanting to get that we and um and we got it and we used it and i i felt happiness because i i, I used the fishing so I would just go fishing. So I definitely, uh, definitely believe that it, it, uh, it definitely helped. And then the cable broke and I haven't been able to get a new cable for it. Um, so haven't been able to fish in some time, but, uh, I don't know if you have thoughts on stuff, uh, on this, uh, on, on this, uh, topic, uh, Dr. Sloan. Well, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm of the other point of view, I'm a skeptic, you know, I mean, just as in the commercial world, the Wii lost its market share to PlayStation, you know, in the long-term care world, I kind of feel like the bloom is off the rose. And it, I think the big problem is you need staff. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's two-on-one or three-on-one or four-on-one. 
you know, and until we have a huge volunteer cohort or until long-term care is very different, um, I, I, it's a great idea. I think, you know, everybody over, you know, under 50 is just living a lot of their lives, you know, in, um, in electronic versions of games. Mm. And to not bring this into the world of long-term care is really a shame. I just, I just don't know how we're going to do it. We still have to work on it. You need to go fishing. Uh, <laughs> fishing would be know, good. We, uh, we, we tried, um, we, for a while, as a similar experience to what, to what you all may have experienced in physical therapy for balance. Yeah. And um, I think, Dr. Sloan, I think the reason you brought up was the reason that it just did not succeed. It was labor intensive. Great idea. Great idea labor intensive it did not last and i have not seen anything um anything brought back uh, since great discussion uh wonderful uh may 2021 uh issue um on innovations and lessons learned from covid 19 and and other articles and as always, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Take a look at that May 2021 issue. Dr. Sloan and Brown, thank you once again for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Absolutely. Thank you, Wayne. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Jamda On The Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex, A-P-E-X, dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.